This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the story of Elijah, Eliyahu, and the lessons learned by one of Israel's greatest prophets. Yeah, this is a good story. You were telling me about the first time you heard this story. You can remember the first time you heard this biblical story. Yes. Tell me more about that. Well, I was in middle school, which seems a little late, but, you know, I had a few wandering years there in the middle. We tell Noah quite a few times in those <laughs> early years. Noah and Jonah. They get... They get you know, they get to work. That's true. Yeah, you know, they get to work out. Uh, anyway, so I hear, I'm in my, I, go, I went to a Christian school in middle school, and it was in my music class where we were going over the story. And I'm, I'm listening to this story being told, and my mind is completely blown. I'm like, how can a story this awesome be in the Bible? <laughs> Heck yeah. This is a good one. Elijah is a pretty cool dude. He is. He is. So a little, a little uh, recap, not a big, long review, but we have been talking about the period that I like to call, um, well, it's not like this is real innovative, but the period of the kings. This is post-Judges, in the days when Israel had no king, if you remember the line from Judges. Mm. Uh, these are the days when Israel had no king and everybody did as he pleased. Um, this is post-Judges uh, and, and into the period of history that I would call the period of the kings. And we have a united kingdom for a while. We have uh, uh, Shaul, who we said was a, a what from where? A donkey herder from the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah. All right. So we got a, a Benjamite who herds donkeys, and he's the type of king that the people want. But then God turns around and gives him the kind of king that he wants. And it's David who happens to be a what from where? He's a shepherd from the tribe of Yehuda. Yeah. And he does quite a... I mean, he's quite a guy. He's also, I'm not sure if I recommended this last time. You'll have to check. But Bruce Feiler wrote a book uh, where God is born. And in a big portion of that book um, where God was born, he talked about um, uh, just his own wrestling matches as a as a, as a a Jew, uh, a Jewish boy being raised, learning the stories of the scriptures. He had a lot of wrestling matches with David because he's this man after God's own heart, but Boy, there's an awful lot of stories that are pretty messed up in the in the history of David. Don't believe we recommended that, so I'll have it in today's show notes. All right. It's a good one. Uh, I, and I really appreciate his thoughts because I've had some of the same thoughts like David is. And, and David is. David is this amazing king. We talked about it last podcast. David David is a man after God's own heart. Uh, he does things that are counterintuitive. Everything seems uh, upside down. At the same time, David has some really screwed up stories. Um, but nevertheless, he is strikingly different. Uh, he pursues a different kind of justice. Uh, he wants to kadush Hashem, we said. Uh, he's a unique kind of guy. And depending on which story we read, because that's also another thing we introduced in this period of history, we've got two, we've got one story, but we've got two sources. Uh, we had story A written from whose perspective, Brent? Uh, that was Israel. Israel's perspective. And it's written like what? Like headlines. Like headlines. And so we've got uh, on, on one hand, we've got a more real-time, that's a poor choice of words, but you get the idea, a more closer-to-the-events perspective on what's happening in this period of history. And they seem to take uh, uh, what was kind of their, what was the agenda of story A, if you will, Brent? Uh, it was uh, more about idolatry and uh, that's right. moral failures. Right. It's yeah. kind of a, a raw telling of the facts, like here's here's what happened, and it just, everything's bad. Absolutely, yeah. It, if you would ask story A, story A was like, well, I'll tell you what, David was on a really great track, a man after God's own heart, until he had his uh, sexual failure with Bathsheba, murder and adultery, and, and this moral failure just led to the 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 crumbling of of Israel and and. 
at that point we just have Israel, not Israel and Judah, but uh, that would have been the, but then we had this other take on it and you have Chronicles, story B, written from whose perspective? From Judah's perspective, Southern Kingdom. And we said it was more like, if it's, if, if story A was more like headline, story B is more like? A documentary. Documentary written centuries later, kind of looking back with all kinds of uh, extra lessons that have been learned, all kinds of hindsight and, and almost with almost a poetic edge looking back on that same period of history and it tells a slightly different tale how does how does story b cast its agenda it says that uh the kings were all about building their empire right and it's not so much about the moral failures of one individual but about a whole spirit that existed amongst the whole nation as they they were falling more and more in love with empire and less in love with God's shalom project. They were buying into the wrong narrative, and they're buying into the wrong story. And we looked at this in the book of Judges. We talked about God's endless patience until you become the anti-story. And we see this kind of crumbling in front of us. And which story is right, Brent? Is it story A or story B? Ooh, they're both right. They're both right, right? And uh, I, I do love the hindsight of story B. I don't think it undoes the agenda and the perspective of story A, not one little bit. Um, but but I do like to take the hindsight and the lessons learned from later in history and go, okay, there's something here. And I think that's what we're going to see. Um, after after David comes Solomon. And Solomon has some, Solomon's not all bad. I mean, Solomon, we what is he known for? Uh, other than what we talked about, what is Solomon famous for, Brent? Uh, well, he had a lot of wives. He had a lot of wives. <laughs> he also had a lot of something else that started with a W. Wisdom. Wisdom, right? So uh, I like that they both wives and wisdom. Oh, man. Which doesn't seem to go together. Not because of the wives, because if you had wisdom, I don't feel like you'd have 700 wives. But how nevertheless. Many, I wonder how many Proverbs there are if you count up all the verses oh, in all the chapters. If there would be more wives or more, more wise I mean, sayings. Wouldn't it be fantastic if every proverb came from one of his wives? If all of his wisdom actually came from the ladies in his life? Oh, man. That's fantastic. You're going to actually search, aren't you? You're going you're to figure out how many Proverbs are in the book of Proverbs. That's fantastic. 3,000 Proverbs. Oh, man. Whew. So let's see. That's uh, that's about three to one. Yeah. Boy, that's pretty good. See what? 700 wives and 300 concubines? Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. We got, yeah, we got a three to one ratio there. Uh, there's something there's something to be said there. Three to one Jewish numbers. Oh boy, we're digressing here. <laughs> Nevertheless, we've got Solomon that comes after David, and he's got he's not all bad. And you know that's one of the takeaways I have from the story of Solomon, is we I, I know I struggle with when I read the scriptures. I either want to make somebody a hero or a villain. They're either just like all good or they're all bad. But that's what we're wrestling here. Uh, that's what we're wrestling with here with David and, and Solomon. They're not all bad and all good. They're humans. And they've got something good that they're bringing to the table. Solomon does too. But in a really, really big way, according to the narrative, uh, Solomon um, is in love with the wrong thing. And it leads Israel astray. And so when Solomon dies, and the next one in line for the throne is who, Brent? Uh, boy, I don't remember. Sarthanar? Rehoboam? Yeah, Rehoboam. They come to Rehoboam. He's the next guy in line. And they say, listen, your dad, life was kind of rough under your dad. Like, he built a pretty awesome palace and a great temple. And and boy, did he establish, quote unquote, peace throughout the land. Um, but uh, boy, it was rough. Can you, can you not be as hard on us as your dad was? And Rehoboam says, uh, boy, he actually gives us some thought. He hears some counsel out. 
Rehoboam says, my finger is as thick as my father's waist. He scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And this is not good. The people are not going to respond well to that. Um, and, uh, and so they rebel. The problem with the rebellion is uh, the, the tribes that rebel against Rehoboam, Judah stays with Rehoboam, kind of inside the ter- territory of, Ju- of Judah. You also have the tribal land of Simeon, Benjamin sitting right there just to the north. Um, they're going to stay with, uh, they're going to stay with, um, uh, with Rehoboam, but the northern t- 10 tribes are going to, uh, they're, they're going to jettison. They're going to rebel, but that creates a problem because God told you had to worship where? In Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so the guy that, that kind of seizes the opportunity because there's a, yeah, I, I think, I, I think politician would be the right word. Um, there's a politician of a man named Jeroboam who had fled to Egypt uh, but he comes back to seize the opportunity of people rebelling against Rehoboam, and he becomes the king to the north. And he now has a problem because if his people go to worship God obediently as God commands, they have to go to Jerusalem. And this is going to be a problem because if they end up hanging up, and Jerusalem's not far. Like if you look at a map between Israel and Judah, Jerusalem is but a few miles into Judah. It would have been a feasible arrangement, I'm sure. But he didn't want them influenced by those southern, the other party. I don't want to pick which party I'm going to align here, but you you understand. He didn't want them influenced by that other worldview. And so he ends up setting up two golden calves, one in the north and one in the south. Uh, and all, there's all kinds of... A golden of, calf, you I say. I know. There's all <laughs> kinds of illusions there. It even, it, it just boggles your mind to even think like, how could he even do that? How could Jeroboam, he even utters like the same line in the text, behold Israel, the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Like it's the same line they use in Exodus. Um, and there are some reasons there. I don't know. We're going to talk about this today, but what is the God, what is the, what is the pagan God that is always demanding their attention, Brent? Baal. Baal. Do you remember what the animal for Baal is? He's a bull, right? Bull, right? So it's not a, uh, if you have people that are struggling with a cultural narrative here of Baal, and you have a king that's trying to gain political power and keep people happy and try to not let them be influenced, and he's going to try to synchronize these worldviews at all, a golden calf actually makes a ton of of political sense. Um, And so he sets up, this is is not good. I find that interesting because all throughout the entire uh, story of this period of history, when the kings of Israel are spoken of, I mean, there's a lot of sin <laughs> in this record, but it always calls them back. They continued in the sin of Jeroboam. They committed the sins of Jeroboam. He committed the sins of Jeroboam, but he followed in the ways of Jeroboam. Like this is a defining mark uh, for the narrative, Jeroboam's decision. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to tear. This is going to split the kingdom apart. And it's indicative of what they're struggling with. They are struggling. They are not trusting the story. They are, as the narrative tells it, they are building their own empires. They're relying on their own political logic and their wonderful common sense of how do you build a kingdom. I'm sure there's nothing relevant for here to, for us today. Um, nothing for the church, nothing for our own political situation, nothing for... So we'll get to something more relevant here later in the podcast. Sarcasm, ladies and gentlemen, that's what it is. Uh, but we have we have this 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 horrible situation. So... I'm taking an awful lot of time. I need to get to the whole Elijah story, don't I? It's a pretty good story. It's a pretty good story. So at Jeroboam, 
Uh, after him is going to be followed by his son Nadav. Um, Nadav is going to be followed by Baasha. Baasha is going to be followed by Elah. Elah is going to be followed by Zimri. And Zimri is going to be followed by Omri. Now, when you read your Bible, Omri has like this small little paragraph, maybe two or three, small little section in your Bible. Not a big deal. You, you never read your Bible and think Omri. Well, there's a guy. But what's interesting is if you know anything about the world of archaeology or anything about the world of the context of the scriptures, uh, you, you know that Omri is one of the most referenced kings in extra-biblical history that we have. If you don't count the Bible, if you just look at what history tells us, Omri is one of the most mentioned kings in the records of Canaanite, Amorite, uh, any of those other nations, anything that we've found, evidence that we've found, Omri is the most prevalent. He was known as being a very well-connected, in some cases a very shrewd, a very ruthless ruler. He was known for being, for making all kinds of treaties and establishing all kinds of relationships. And the one that is relevant to our discussion here with Elijah is the relationship that he built with Phoenicia. Um, Phoenicia, if you ever look at a map, in fact, I bet you can find a map and I bet you can put it along with our podcast, showing us where Phoenicia is just to the north and northwest of the land of Israel, just northwest of Samaria, great coastal plain power a powerhouse that you want a relationship with if you're trying to establish security in your land. Omri builds a relationship. Now, many, and this is going to be relevant, not just a sidetrack, uh, it's going to be relevant in a few years. I'll put it that way. When we get to the end of our podcast, it's going to be relevant. Uh, many many would actually point out it's not Omri that actually establishes this relationship. Can you remember from our past studies, Brent, who is it that opens the door to this Phoenician relationship? It's one of our kings, so Solomon, probably. Can you remember where he opened up that door? Solomon was building a fancy little structure. The temple. Yeah, and he needed some bronze workers and stonemasons. Mm. And he went to Phoenicia to get them. And he told King Hiram uh, when he made the business arrangement, because he's really, oh boy, so many political jokes. Never mind. I'm going to leave those alone. Uh, but when he made this business arrangement, he decided uh, that he was going to give 30 towns in the lower Galilee to Hiram. Now, a lot of Jewish teachers or Old Testament professors or scholars are going to point out uh, that was really where this relationship with Phoenicia began. They can point all the way back to Solomon. Now, keep that in your hat because that's going to come back a few years from now. We get to the old book of Revelation. We're going to see that pop up again. But uh, but Omri is trying to strengthen this relationship. Makes a ton of sense. If you want to have peace in the land, you need to live at peace with all your your neighbors. The problem is, is when Omri dies, his son is the great famous biblical king, Ahab. And everybody wants to solidify this relationship with Phoenicia. And so they have Ahab in, in order to, every time there's a death, every time there's a new king, everybody gets nervous that maybe the relationship won't be what it used to be. So in order to solidify that, Ahab marries the famous individual who, Brent? Jezebel. So he marries Jezebel. And, um, and Jezebel happens to be the high priestess of Phoenicia. And we're just like, oh, who, well, high priestess, who cares? High priestess means that she's the high priestess of Asherah worship. I mean, if you go back to our discussion like Joshua, where we had those, we had those pictures of the, the, the Baals and the... Um, 
the the children that would be put on the hot hands and the Asherah poles. I mean, that worship always originates in Phoenicia. Phoenicia was kind of known as having the, if you will, cutting edge Baal worship of the day. This is not just like, oh, she was a priestess. This is, she she is the, the high priestess of some of the most ruthless, oppressive, destructive idolatry that's present in the land of Israel at the time. And Ahab marries into it. Now, on to this Ahab, scene. Ahab, the king of Israel. Ahab, the king of Israel. Absolutely. Marries, marries the Jezebel, high the high priestess of Asherah worship from Phoenicia. This is not good. They are definitely continuing in the ways of Jeroboam. Right. And so, on to this scene births our character, as you called him, Eliyahu, uh, Elijah. And uh, go ahead and read First Kings 17, where he shows up. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Really interesting passage here. Uh, First of all, we don't know a lot about Elijah. He just shows up from nowhere. It's really interesting. We don't know the background. We don't know his genealogy. He's just from Tishba. That's all we know. And and here comes Elijah, and he says, hey, hey, listen, it's not going to rain. Now, what's, what's astounding about that is almost all Jewish tradition teaches Elijah just said, God did not tell him to say that. Elijah just said, hey, it's not going to rain. It was his decision to say, now, I, I know a lot of Christians get, well, what do you mean? Of course, God told him to say that. He's a prophet. He only says what God tells him to say. But can if you still have the passage up, can you read the very next statement after he says that? Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Okay, so the text has no problem telling us that the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. Did it say the word of the Lord came to Elijah? Not before that. Not before that. So is he just like, is he just going around making up stuff? I mean, who is this guy? This is the fiery prophet Elijah. And fire might be the right, like we use that as an adjective. It's probably the right adjective. He's a, he likes fire. Uh, Elijah's a guy who, uh, if you know the stories, he calls down fire as the as the opposing general keeps sending in uh, soldiers to to seize him, to kill Elijah. He just keeps calling fire down to consume the soldiers wave after wave after wave. It's going to be fire in this story today that he calls down on top of Mount Carmel. But it's also the image that um, that describes who he is, like his heart. Elijah has the fire and the heart of a prophet. Uh, we called it, what's the Hebrew word we call for that, Brent? Chutzpah. He has chutzpah. What kind of a prophet shows up and just says, without God telling him, it's not going to rain. You have to have some chutzpah to say it's not going to rain. Um, but the Jews point out, God didn't tell him that. So what is he doing? What, like, why in the world would Elijah say it's not? Is he just like picking some random idea out of a hat? Or is it perhaps in the... In the text. It's in the text. Of course it is. And so he knows his Bible. And, and go ahead and read Deuteronomy 11, uh, whatever the... Is it 16 through 18? Yeah. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, 
and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So he knows his Bible. He doesn't just come up with a random idea out of nowhere. He says, listen, Ahab, you're sinning. You're bowing down to other gods. You've led Israel into idolatry. This is wrong. And I know what the Bible says about people that make this mistake. It says it's not going to rain. So you know what? It's not going to rain. The Jews teach that what this is called here is it's called binding God to his text. Elijah calls God to the promises he wrote in Deuteronomy. And because God loves that wrestling Jacob chutzpah-like faith, God honors that, uh, even if he doesn't like it. That's what the, now you don't have to buy that if, you, if, that's, if that's a bridge too far. But Jewish tradition says God wasn't ready to shut up the clouds and make it not rain. But Elijah called out God's promises, says, this is what you're going to do. He binds God to his text and God honors that because he says, all right, you know your Bible. I said I'd do it. And I'm going to do that. I love how that spun my understanding of this story, which is super interesting because God then feeds him with what? With the ravens. With the ravens. Now, in Jewish thought, a raven is what kind of a bird? Not clean. It's not clean. And it's a... Scavenger. It's a scavenger. So that means that where is this food coming from? Something else. Somebody else's food. Like he gets a sandwich for lunch. It was some other other person's sandwich. And here's the thing about saying it's not going to rain. Like, it's really good if it's just about you and a political statement. It's really good if it's just about Elijah protesting some kind of political injustice or idolatry. The problem is, is if it doesn't rain, what happens to everybody else, Brent? Nobody's getting food. This is not good for women, children, people that depend on God's provision. And Elijah has this narrow view of just him and Ahab and truth and... There are some of us listening to this podcast. I'm one of them. And I've had students that are prophets. I mean, they stand for truth and justice. And they have a fire in their belly. And they're going to pursue that truth and justice at all costs. And what we don't often understand is if we don't do it in God's way, with God's timing, we end up hurting a lot of people along the way. Innocent bystanders that have nothing to do with the argument that we may even be right about. And the Jews teach there's all this, there's indications here. He's fed by ravens, like he's eating somebody else's lunch. And then the story goes on, the story goes on. And then the next time we hear from the Lord, it's God showing up to Elijah after three years. In the New Testament, we're told three and a half years, playing off of some Jewish tradition. But after three to three and a half years, God finally speaks again in the story. And what is it that he says, Brent? Um, go go to Ahab, and I'm going to send rain. Right is the next time God talks. God never says it's not going to rain. Uh, and then the next time that God talks after this whole thing gets started, the next words that God says is, "Okay, listen, it's going to rain. Go tell Ahab. This is enough. Enough is enough, Elijah. I'm trying to get through to you. I'm trying to tell you what you're doing. Enough is enough. We're going to send some rain." Go tell Ahab. Now, do you have the story there in front of you? First uh, Kings 18, second part? Yeah. So uh, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Okay, I love this because... Elijah comes to him and he's, he's such a prophet. He has one mission, 
God told him to go tell Ahab it's going to rain. And he goes, and Ahab has some words for him, and he's got some words back, and he says, I'm no troubler. You're the troubler of Israel. It's you and your idolatry. And then he goes to set up this contest. So go ahead. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel, his wife, I guess we should yes. remember. Yes. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. All right. So so we have uh, God telling him, Go tell Ahab it's going to rain. And I love this chutzpah, fiery prophet. The one thing God didn't tell him was, how to tell him it's going to rain. So Elijah's not backing down easy. He's like, okay, God, I'll go do it. I tell you, but I'm going to make, I'm going to turn this into a thing. He is not just going to go tell Ahab it's going to rain. He's going to make this a contest. He's going to prove who the true God is. Like this is who Elijah is. I just love how he sets this up. So he sets up a contest on top of Mount Carmel and he gives Baal home court advantage, if you will. Like you get, it's, it's Baal's mountain. There's already an altar on top of Mount Carmel, we're told. They don't have to build an altar. He's going to have to build an altar to Adonai, but he doesn't have to build an altar to Baal because there's already one on Baal. He tells him to get a bull, which is whose animal? Uh, Baal. It's Baal's animal. Uh, He wants, we're calling out to heaven so that uh, lightning will come and strike it. Now, we haven't really unpacked all of Baal worship here, but can you remember what Baal's weapon is? Uh, Is it lightning? It's lightning. So Baal's animal is the bull. His voice is thunder. Uh, lightning is his weapon. Um, he's got home court, like Elijah's setting it all up. It's all Baal stuff. It should all work. You set up the contest. Um, Baal and Asherah. I don't know if we've unpacked this yet in our podcast. The uh, backstory, and I don't tell this story to be crude, but the backstory to Baal and Asherah worship is Baal is the god of what, Brent? Uh, the god of war? It, he is. And also, uh, when you're not at war, the god of agricultural... Fertility. Fertility. Okay. Asherah happens to be the goddess of... Fertility. For human fertility, right? So we have the... Both of them are fertility gods. One of them of agricultural fertility. Makes your crops grow. Sends the rain. The myth behind it is Baal and Asherah are a couple. Uh, Asherah is his mistress. And the reason that winter comes every year is because Baal descends into the underworld and pursues his mistress where they, where she toys with them and toys with him. And anytime he gets close to ejaculation, she, she pulls away and... The rain that you experience in the rainy season is Baal's seed, if you will, uh, falling all around the earth. So this whole contest um, is set up because they need they need rain, which they see as Baal's. Like Elijah set in the stage. This is your story. This is your God. This is what this is what you guys believe works. Make it work. Here we go. You get you need rain. Let's do this thing. Um, and he sets up this contest. So go ahead and keep reading where you're at. Oh, oh, and then I love the statement he makes right when you get, got done reading. What was the last line you read? Can you remember? So if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Okay, what was the line right before where you just started? How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver? And the word for waver there is is uh, is sexually dance. It's like a sexually erotic dance in the Hebrew. So he's like, how long will you sexually dance between two gods? A clear play on Baal worship. If the Lord is God, choose him. If Baal is God, choose him. And the people remained what? They said nothing. Uh, which I, I think is an interesting reference. The last time we heard this was in the book of Joshua. Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. And do you remember what the people said in Joshua? They said in Joshua, 
we of course will worship God. Well, of course. Who else would we worship? Uh, knowing this is a foreshadowing. And this time they say nothing. Maybe because they remember their own story. Maybe because they're in an even worse spot. Who knows? But it's an interesting play on the two stories there. But go ahead and keep reading. So you think they remembered that they made the commitment before. Maybe. And Elijah's calling back to it saying, hey, remember this commitment. And they're like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep i i at least from the author's point of view i feel like there's an illusion there and i think maybe they get it too then elijah said to them i am the only one of the lord's prophets left but baal has 450 prophets get two bulls for us let baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it i will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. It's a good idea. It's a great contest. I love this. All right, let's, be, let's see what happens. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not let the, light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. I find the the things he says, even the the taunting that Eli, the trash talking, if you will, that Elijah participates in, even has bail overtones to it. Some would argue, perhaps he's busy, or or the one was sleeping. But the reference to busy there refers either to uh, when I was taught this. I was well. Maybe he's relieving himself. I. I that some would argue there's a highly sexual overtone to that saying, saying essentially, well, maybe Bale's just trying to muster up, you know, what he needs to get the job done here. Like, and, and it gets translated away as we try to soften the English, but there is some heavy, heavy trash talking going on here. So go ahead and keep going. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So maybe I misspoke earlier. There, there is an altar up there, but it's not in use, and he has to put it back together. Uh, let's see. They, they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, I've heard a lot of people talk about, well, he's making it even harder to do the miracle. He's drenching the altar in water. That, from a Jewish perspective, is not at all what's taking place. If you are going to call down lightning from heaven to strike an exact spot on a mountain, and devour the altar, the sacrifice, and everything on it. You don't need to put water on it to make it more impressive. It's going to be impressive enough already. But what again, what Elijah does know is he knows his text. And this would be an allusion to Torah when you celebrate Sukkot, 
Now, at the very end of Sukkot, there's a big water ceremony, which we've referenced before. And that's where you're asking God for what, Brent? For rain. For rain. You ask God for rain by pouring that water on the altar. And so here is Elijah pouring three times. I wonder if that's for every year that they were without rain. Pour three times, asking God in a very biblical, Torah-observant way to answer his prayer for rain. Go ahead. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This guy has some more. This guy's got some chutzpah. We're told he goes up and down Mount Carmel at least twice. At least twice. Uh, We're told he goes down to the Kishon Valley. Then he goes back up Carmel. He was already at the top of Carmel. So that's at least two trips up this mountain. Not a fun hike, by the way. (laughs) You've been on that hike. This guy's got, I mean, this guy's not a slacker. This guy is willing to do whatever it takes to show who the true God is. Prays his heart out. Tells Ahab he, he needs to get out of here. Like, get in your chariot and go. Because once the rains start, you can't get a chariot across the Jezreel Valley. It's going to be muddy. You're going to be stuck. You need to get out of here. Get back home. And then he, he just runs a half marathon. I mean, it's no big deal. He just runs like, you know, whatever, 15 miles to uh, ahead of the chariot. Beats the chariot there. I mean, no, no big This guy. Who is this guy? This fiery prophet. Um. And it, it it works so well. How about you tell me, uh, keep reading, Brent, into 19, and tell me all about how well this works. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. But everybody's heard now, Jezebel. Don't you know? Everybody has heard that uh, who the true God is. Like, you, you can't make those kind of demands. Your, your days are finished. Everybody in Israel is going to rise up and defend this fiery prophet because he showed them truth. They now know truth. Like, that. what a silly... You can't fight this prophet. Everybody's going to come to his rescue, right? Keep reading, Brent. Well, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush... Uh, a broom bush. A broom bush. A, a rotem. Broom, a broom tree. A rotem. Very good. Uh, sat down under it and prayed that he might die, which is probably the right feeling for in, sure when you're in the area where you might find a rotem. Well, absolutely. You feel that way anyway. But with the story he's just had and the marathon he just ran and then no, 
no support, uh, no, and nobody rises up to protect him. He has to run for his, like, this didn't work. Like all of this, this whole contest, Brent, it didn't work. All the fire, all the, the show and the pomp and the circumstance, all the truth, all the justice, all the rightness, it didn't work. And, and, and you remember what the people said? What did they say at the contest? They, they said, the Lord, he is God. The Adonai, Lord, he, he is, is God. God. Uh, he, he won the day. But it didn't change the hearts of the people. And he's like, forget it. I'm going to go sit under a rotum. I give up. I'm done. Thank you very much. I'm cashing my chips because this doesn't work. Go ahead and keep reading. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. Ooh, 40 days and 40 nights. The mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. He's got a little pout party going on. Gets to this cave. Justified. I mean, I'm not throwing him under the bus here. I'd feel pretty lousy too. So I'm the only one. The only one of your prophets left. Everybody, you know, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, doesn't work. Nobody worships you. I'm the only one who cares. I mean, I've been here before. This is one of the stories for me as a, as a, uh, I don't know if recovering prophet would be the right word or not, but as a prophet that God's been trying to mold for years, this has been a big story for me personally. Uh, you start to, you have the self-righteous, I'm the only one, the only one. Go ahead and keep reading. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and yeah, shattered is, the rocks before the Lord. This is Elijah's kind of thing, right? Big wind, all right. But the Lord was not in the wind. Oh, nuts. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the yeah. Lord was not in the earthquake. Oh, man. After the earthquake came a fire. Now we're talking, this is Elijah's thing. But the Lord was not in the fire. Oh, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now, I, I can't help but think of desert and, and becoming people of, of the ears who know how to hear the voice. Elijah goes back to the desert, to Horeb, to Sinai, where it all happened. And God says, I got to bring you back here because I got to remember. You have to remember. I've got to remind you how I work and how I do things. But uh, go keep going. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> well played. Well played, sir. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. This guy's got some chutzpah. Like, after all of this. <laughs> it's like word for word. Like, verbatim. Hey, I thought, it, okay, all right, I'll say it again. I'll let you... <laughs> Yeah. I'm the only one, remember? <laughs> oh, man. Some Jewish tradition teaches, like, the reason, the reason that Elijah gets taken up in chariots of fire at the end of his story is because God retires him. Because he's so full of chutzpah, so stubborn, so committed to the mission that God's like, I can't, 
you you won't soften your heart. I can't use you. So what's the thing? What's what's the next three verses say? The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat from Avel Mehalah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Yeah, God's like, shut up, Elijah. There's thousands of people. You're not the only one. I have reserved lots of people that have your fire. They have your passion. They have your commitment. They have your faithfulness. You're not the only one. So seven thousand. Seven thousand. How about, so ooh, I like that, seven, seven thousand. So how about you get up, Elijah? How about you go make a disciple? A lot of Jewish traditional teachers is the first rabbi-disciple relationship is Elijah. You could say in some Jewish tradition, Moses and Joshua, but a lot of people say this is where it starts, is with Elijah and Elisha. How about you go back and how about you make a disciple? And I bet you we can change the world with that. And uh, just one of the most stunning lessons I've ever learned is the story of Elijah where God says all the fire, all the truth, all the rightness, it doesn't change the human heart. It doesn't change the human heart. Love, a still, small voice. The Jews actually teach the still, small voice. They connect it um, through oral tradition. They connect it to the the whisper. They call it the sod, the whisper of God. Uh, and they connect that whisper to the song of songs, the whisper of two lovers in bed with one another. This is the kind of intimate, still, small voice the kind of loving hand and loving method that God uses to change human hearts. Uh, Elijah, it doesn't work. All the fire, it doesn't work. But if you'll just go love people, just go love them, Elijah. Just go show them how to love. Remind them of who I am. That's the only thing that has the potential. Not not the huge contests, not the apologetics and the big, de- I mean, the debates are cool. Like do that. Apologetics is awesome. Do that. I mean, it's, it's great. But the Mount Carmel doesn't change human hearts. Maybe it's useful. Maybe it's good. Discipleship. Mm, now we're onto something. A little glimpse into our future here at, B- at Beam Up. But good story. I love it. It's one of my favorites. And definitely a little bit different than my perspective on it in middle school, but Whew. still a great story. That's good. I'm glad we, uh, we took it somewhere. <laughs> There's so much, you know, by itself, it's an awesome story. But, like, yeah. when you understand the context around it, like, it's so much bigger than that. More rich. More, yeah, good stuff. All right, well, if you live on the Palouse, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. We're back in full swing here for the fall. Uh, if you've kind of been a little bit disconnected over the summer, I invite you to go to baymontdiscipleship.com. Uh, check out other discussion groups around the country. Get connected to somebody somewhere and and uh, start talking about this. Start wrestling. Uh, you can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. And uh, thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>